Womanzy News embarks on its third decade as the only global nonprofit news organization reporting on the most crucial issues impacting women and girls around the world so that we may continue to shape how women and girls are represented in the media toward creating a more equitable world that honors, respects, and supports the lives of women and girls by seeking the truth and reporting it, acting independently with accountability and transparency. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Julie Sook. I'm a professor of law at Fordham University School of Law in New York City. I'm an expert on gender equality in constitutions around the world, as well as in the United States, and author of We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, which is a book that details the 100-year and ongoing struggle for an amendment guaranteeing gender equality in the U.S. Constitution. Most constitutions around the world, pretty much every constitution that's been drafted in the 20th century and the 21st century has a provision that effectively does that, even though sometimes it's worded as equal rights between women and men, or it's worded as no discrimination on the basis of sex or no discrimination on the basis of gender. Uh, but the basic idea uh, is to have a constitutional provision uh, that says women are equal participants uh, in society, have equal rights in the economic, legal, and political sphere, uh, are people with equal stature uh, under the law. Uh, so that's what the purpose of such a constitutional uh, provision is. And in the United States, uh, despite 100 years and counting, uh, of efforts to get such a provision in the U.S. Constitution, uh, it isn't officially uh, in the text of the U.S. Constitution yet. So I have two questions right off the bat. One is, what were the women who introduced the ERA, what were they trying to accomplish? What was it they wanted? And why has it taken 100 years and why do we still not have it? Yeah, well, if you think about the introduction of the ERA in 1923, that was uh, an amendment that was introduced on the heels of the 19th Amendment, uh, which was the Women's Suffrage Amendment. And that amendment had been fought for for nearly a century as well. The 19th Amendment just says that the right to vote uh, can't be denied or abridged on account of sex. Uh, it doesn't make reference to other rights. Uh, and um, when uh, that movement succeeded uh, in a constitutional amendment. Many of the proponents of women's suffrage said, well, the vote is only the beginning uh, and the vote is not enough because uh, what existed uh, at the time uh, were many laws, uh, both at the federal and state level, that excluded women from what we would today recognize to be the uh, basic rights of citizenship. So, for example, uh, if there are laws in a state that say that you can't own property if you're a married woman, um, or laws in a state that say you can't work in certain jobs if you're a woman, um, or laws in another state that say even if you can work at certain jobs as a woman, you don't own uh, your own earnings because all of the earnings are, are controlled within the family by the head of household, which is always the husband and father, right? So if you have those kinds of laws, uh, then women are, do not have equal rights under the law. Uh, and so the real purpose was to just in one fell swoop uh, to make it uh, illegal uh, to pass any laws 
that really excluded women uh, from equal participation. And uh, interestingly, uh, in the hundred years since it was introduced, many have, of those laws have fallen away uh, because uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, our political leaders and elected representatives um, have actually gotten rid of those laws. Uh, and some of those laws have got, been gotten rid of, not just because lawmakers have repealed them, uh, but also because um, feminists like uh, then uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was an attorney uh, in the 1970s, she brought a lot of cases. She litigated them uh, to have some of those laws that I've mentioned struck down. Uh, and they were struck down not based on the ERA, but based on an interpretation and an extension of uh, the existing constitutional text uh, in the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the laws. Why has it taken 100 years? What's the, what's the, what's the story there? Well, we could start by looking at why it took so long to get women's suffrage. I think it's pretty obvious that when you don't have the right to vote, uh, you're not among the people voting on whether women could vote. Uh, there's a real paradox. Uh, if you don't have power, it's hard to get power when the people who decide who has power uh, don't include women. Uh, and th I think that story is very easy to tell about the vote, uh, but it's also true about the Equal Rights Amendment. And let me be a little bit more specific. Um, our Constitution, uh, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, tells you how to get a constitutional amendment. Uh, it tells you that you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress uh, and three-quarters of all the state legislatures uh, to ratify the amendment. Uh, and so if you exist in a space where uh, most people who are elected to Congress are opponents of the amendment, uh, and uh, most of them are men, I mean, at the time that the ERA is introduced, there's really one woman in Congress at all. Uh, and for decades, uh, the women in, there are very few women in Congress, uh, and, um, and many of the women who are in Congress uh, are elected in special elections after their husbands die and they take on their husbands' uh, seats, right? So, so women are greatly underrepresented. Uh, and so our rules of change uh, because they require such a major, huge supermajority, uh, make it really difficult to have changes uh, in the direction of greater constitutional inclusion. So you're saying that structurally the system is designed to uh, keep people from gaining power. So I think that at the founding, uh, our political institutions were designed to um, maintain a certain balance of power, what the founders had in mind. So for example, um, they designed a Senate uh, that would uh, always have, there would always be two senators per state, regardless of the population uh, of that state. And that that's one thing that really, in some ways, uh, overrepresented uh, underpopulated slaveholding states. There are a lot of features of the system uh, that kept in power um, a certain set of um, people uh, and regions and states uh, that were in power at the beginning and were very interested in excluding both women and African-Americans 
uh, from citizenship and political power. I mean, the story of America is the story of movements and of people mm -hmm. um, finding ways to navigate through this unequal racist system um, and claim bits of power for themselves and to change the system as they go. And I'm wondering if this story of the ERA, if we, if, is it possible to tell it that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's not surprising. The ERA really doesn't get off the ground uh, between 1923 and the early 1970s. And I think it's just because uh, it's not a political priority, but even if every woman in Congress had supported it uh, in the 1920s, that would have been like a few people, just a handful of people. And even in 1970, when it does get two thirds of the House vote or well over two thirds of the House vote, um, even when, it, when Congress adopts it in 1972, uh, there's really like 10 women, uh, around 10 women, depending on at what moment in the congressional session you count, uh, in Congress at all. And almost all of them, all but one, um, is in favor of the ERA. And, and many are, are very active in pushing it forward. And that makes a huge difference uh, to its popularity. Not, not to mention uh, that there's a whole movement. Uh, uh, there, there's a second wave of the women's movement uh, that is supporting the ERA uh, by the time you get to the 1970s. So I think that you're absolutely right that uh, part of uh, what makes the ERA succeed uh, is uh, the eventual empowerment of women. Uh, and, um, and part of the purpose of the ERA is not just what you get when you put those words into the constitutional text as law, uh, but the politics of drawing attention uh, to the inequality of rights that exist everywhere. Uh, and that's what empowers uh, women uh, and empowers them not only to pursue the ERA as constitutional text, but to pursue many other legal and political changes uh, that the, they think that the ERA is about. There, there really isn't an understanding of um, what this thing is and why it's important. Um, I think I mentioned to you that I spoke to a few 20-something uh, women. The, the three things they cared about most were equal pay, um, discrimination, um, including Asian hate, two of the women were Asian, and uh, um, reproductive rights. And then they, they talked about uh, other issues of harassment and pregnancy discrimination. They didn't use those words. They said things like, I don't want to have my kids until I'm in my late 30s because I don't want to be discriminated against in my job as an inevitability. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, but then I said, but, okay, so what do you know about the ERA? And they've never even heard of it. And, and I said, well, what, what questions might you have of the experts that I'm going to talk to? And they said, well, how does that even work? Like how, yeah. like, well, first they just had no confidence that the system that they live in, these were three women of color um, and women, <laughs> had no confidence that the system that they live in would ever have their back. And then when I said, well, there's this, this ERA that women have been fighting for that might help make these some, some changes that might empower you. They're like, well, the Constitution doesn't seem very relevant to me, they said. It doesn't seem very modern, was another thing. And then there was that last question of, well, how would that even work? Like, how does something yeah. in the Constitution affect my life in any way? Um, I'd like to speak to them in understanding the relevance of, of what this is. I'm not surprised by the story you tell, Rachel, because I think that many young people in America today 
do not see the Constitution of the United States as something that can change because of what they do. Largely, it's because the amendment rule that we have, Article 5, has been so infrequently used because it's so hard to use, because it requires such a huge consensus, that most of the constitutional change that we have gotten has come through lawyers and judges, through Supreme Court interpretation. Uh, and so most people do not feel like changing the Constitution is something that they can do to affect their rights. And that's something that's radically different from um, the way that constitutions work uh, in other countries, right? So part of my interest personally uh, in studying the ERA stemmed from my spending time talking to my contemporaries when I was in my 20s and when I was in law school uh, in the um, early 2000s, uh, my contemporaries in other countries like France, who said, well, uh, the court struck down a law uh, requiring gender parity in uh, elections for public office and in political party candidate lists, equal numbers of men and women. The court struck it down, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to amend the Constitution uh, to put gender parity in there. And they did it. They got an amendment in 1999. They got another amendment in 2008 that made it even stronger. Uh, but I don't think we think that way here. You know what? The Supreme Court has gutted reproductive rights, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to amend the Constitution. Uh, I don't think people in America think of that. Uh, they say, we're going to try to bring more lawsuits to get different judges to say something else, right? Uh, and I think that is a fundamental problem of constitutional democracy. Uh, and this brings us to the ERA. I think there was a time when women thought, uh, when the laws are oppressive, we need to change the law. We need to change the Constitution to begin with, right? Uh, and then we need to change other laws empowered by the way in the, the, the um the constitutional change that we have made. We the people, uh, we the women, uh, not uh, we the judges, uh, we the Supreme Court, okay? So I think, so that is a fundamental problem. Uh, and so here uh, it's taken this long uh, and the story that you see is that uh, there is not enough power. Uh, there's a tremendous groundswell in the seventies, but it comes short. Uh, in ratifying the ERA. Although we have to remember, if you think about the fact that 35 states ratified the ERA uh, between 1972 and 1977, uh, we focus on the fact that that was not enough to send it over the edge in the US. But think about that, 35 out of 50 states, that's a clear supermajority of the states. Uh, and it's a clear supermajority of the people who live in this country who supported the ERA. Uh, and uh, yet uh, in this country, even if uh, the majority of the American people vote for one candidate for president, uh, that person may or may not become president because we have in the constitution, the electoral college, right? So that's yet another example of how we have structures in the constitution that prevent the people uh, from uh, democratically deciding our fate. Uh, electoral college is one example. Article five of the constitution uh, about amendments is another example. So if you think about the ERA, it's like uh, a very strong majority of the country at different historical moments has supported it, but we have structures in the constitution that say, 
but too bad you can't add it to the constitution. So now what do we do to get out of this cage, right? The constitution is this cage that we've built around ourselves. It was written in the 18th century uh, and we're trying to use it to deal with 21st century problems, right? So I think that what the ERA brings attention to, the fact that it has not succeeded, despite the fact that it's had so much support and it's had so much influence as well, because the success of the ERA has influenced the way that we have interpreted the Equal Protection Clause. It has uh, brought a lot of women uh, to the streets, right? ERA demonstrations, uh, ERA discussions in the legislatures have opened people's minds about what more needs to happen on things like equal pay and domestic violence and campus sexual assault mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. the fact that women are discriminated against uh, when they are pregnant and when they become mothers and that women bear the brunt of caregiving uh, in this society, all of those things, right? So I think that finishing the ERA by bringing it over the edge and having it recognized in the constitution is a really important way of continuing uh, the fight for empowerment, which is not in the end about empowering women or about feminism. Um, it's really about uh, making people into agents of constitutional change. Uh, and it's a very tall order in the United States because our amendment rule says that the people are not in charge of changing the constitution, right? And even within the United States, you'll see some differences. Like in many states, the people do have a role in amendment constitution. They can do ballot initiatives. Uh, many states have a, an, an amendment rule uh, that says that once there is a, an amendment that's proposed by the legislature, uh, you, you need to have a referendum. People have to vote on whether or not it becomes an amendment to the constitution. So, so I think that focusing on the ERA now, the fact that it's been attempted and supported and has had so much influence for over a century, uh, but yet is still not part of the constitution, uh, under the official rules of what makes something part of our constitution uh, should tell us something about uh, some serious flaws in the U.S. Constitution that the people should feel empowered uh, to address collectively. And I think we can begin by getting the ERA into the constitution. And right now, the means to do that uh, is to have those three uh, last uh, post-deadline ratifications of the ERA, which happened in the recent years, uh, recognized. Uh, and I think the path to having it recognized uh, is for Congress to remove the deadline and to officially then, uh, the removal of the deadline would officially uh, make it uh, law or make it part of constitutional law, make it part of a, the Constitution. Uh, but I think doing that uh, and having that success story uh, would really, I think, open up a whole lot of other uh, conversations that we need to have in this country uh, about empowering people for constitutional change and empowering people to update the provisions of the Constitution that actually keep subordinated groups subordinated, uh, including the Electoral College, including the design of the Senate. Uh, the design of the Senate also uh, empowers the Senate uh, to have its own rules that block changes that are in favor of people, including the filibuster. Uh, speaking of filibusters, can we talk about this um, this this deadline? Because it sounds really wonky, and it's it, it makes a lot of people go to sleep. And yet, 
both the story of why the deadline is there <laughs> is fascinating to me, and and also what it what it represents and what it would represent if we or when we're able to get it removed in order to get the ERA recorded in the Constitution. So the deadline on the ratification of a constitutional amendment was a brilliant or is a brilliant political weapon that was invented by men who wanted to stay in power uh, in the context of vast social division on important questions, namely the prohibition amendment. Uh, many people in the country wanted prohibition and some politicians uh, didn't want to vote against it, but were ambivalent about it. So the deadline was a compromise weapon. It was a way of saying, if people really want it, they better get in line quickly. Otherwise, we'll get past it and we won't have prohibition. So give it a time limit. Maybe it'll die on its own without you having to kill it. Uh, and that's the first time that the deadline was used. The next amendment that came up was women's suffrage. Uh, and again, there were some guys who did not want to go down in history as the people who opposed women's right to vote. Uh, but they didn't really uh, want uh, to, women's right to vote to succeed either. Solution? deadline. Uh, I don't kill it, but maybe it'll die on its own, right? Uh, and uh, the suffragists called them out on it. Carrie Chapman Catt, uh, they said, we don't want a deadline on the 19th Amendment, uh, because if you put a deadline on the 19th, uh, on uh, the suffrage amendment, uh, then uh, it's just going to die. Uh, and we're going to be doing this all over again. So no seven-year deadline, right? Uh, and there was no deadline on the 19th Amendment uh, for that reason. But because it was used so frequently to achieve a political compromise in the 20th century, many people began to think that it was pro forma. But interestingly, the ERA did, was proposed in 1970 with no deadline, and the House passed it with no deadline. But when it got to the Senate, uh, most of most men in the Senate supported the ERA, but a few very vocal opponents, including Sam Irvin, a segregationist from North Carolina, who everyone knew he was part of the group that filibustered the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So they dragged their heels and they, they opposed the ERA on many substantive grounds. They did not want to give women equality under the Constitution. But one of the many arguments they made uh, was, why doesn't this have a deadline? Almost all the amendments that we've had have had a deadline. Uh, and if you frame it like that, it looks like a pretty neutral and small procedural intervention. But they dragged their heels and dragged out debate. There's no time limit on debate in the Senate. Um, they dragged their heels on mostly a lot of other issues having specifically to do with the place of women in, in the military or in the workplace. Uh, but uh, one additional sticking point was the deadline. So the supporters of the ERA said, you know, let's just put a deadline in. They, were, they didn't want to compromise on the important issues like what's going to happen to women in the workplace, mm -hmm. right? But, um, but they, so, so they compromised on the deadline. So when the ERA was reintroduced in 1971, and again, passed by an overwhelming, over 90% majority of the House and over 90% majority of the Senate, uh, it had that seven-year deadline. Uh, and if you trace that legislative history, if you look carefully at the debates about the ERA that led to its success in the 1970s, uh, two things are clear. Uh, number one, the deadline uh, 
got in there because of very vocal uh, men uh, who were in a very small minority, but uh, really willing to make a big stink. Were they threatening a filibuster? They never said the F word, Uh, (laughs) but they were talking long and long and long and preventing the thing from coming to a vote. They were introducing all these amendments to the ERA, like they wanted to put in more language saying this doesn't mean women can be drafted. You know, they tried to put in all Mm -hmm. this stuff. Uh, These are all delay tactics, because if you change the text, uh, that means that it has to go back to the House Right. Uh, and if you're running out of time before the legislative session ends, it's not going to go back to the House. It dies. Right. So all these delay tactics are basically like a filibuster. Right. You don't vote on it uh, so that you could debate on it indefinitely. Uh, but uh, we don't debate on things indefinitely. The congressional session ends and things that didn't get done are dead. Right. Or have and then have to be reintroduced after elections in the next legislative session. That's how the legislative process and the amendment process uh, would work. So so the deadline was one of these things. Uh, If you wanted a deadline in, um, that meant meant that even if you voted on it, uh, it would be the the ERA would effectively be dead. It'd have to be reintroduced because you make a change. You can't um, have an amendment sent to the states for ratification unless both houses have agreed to the same text. Right. So that's so these are facts about like how you make law uh, that really matter for understanding like there that uh, the end of the legislative session was coming up. And a few guys uh, who were prone to talking for hours and hours and hours said, what about that deadline? And that's why the next time when they come back after elections, uh, Martha Griffiths says, all right, we're just going to put that deadline in. Uh, It has overwhelming support. But I think if you look closely at the legislative history, as I have, it's really clear uh, that the second thing that I mentioned, the second thing that's really clear from that history is that there were really, there were eight men in the Senate who voted against the ERA. Uh, 84 to eight was the vote. Uh, and, um, And it's really clear that there was enough support for the ERA in the Senate that even if it hadn't had the deadline, if it had just come up for a vote without some few people dragging out debate and preventing it from coming to a vote. If it just come for a vote without the deadline, it would have passed by two thirds, no question, right? Uh, And I think we have to understand those dynamics, the possibility of filibuster giving an inordinate amount of power to people who are just willing to be a pain, uh, even if they don't have the votes to block something, if they can prevent it from coming up for a vote just by talking longer. Um, they wield an enormous amount of disproportionate power. And that's exactly what happened. And then if you look at the history of ratifications uh, in a place like Virginia, um, why did it take until 2020 for Virginia to uh, ratify the ERA? Well, they tried in the 1970s to ratify it. Uh, The men who controlled the Committee on Privileges and Elections in one house of the Virginia legislature kept it bottled up in committee. They have an inordinate amount of power. Um, if uh, even if there are the votes uh, in one house of the legislature to pass the ratification, um, if four guys on the Privileges and Elections Committee uh, say we're not sending it up for a vote, uh, it dies in committee, right? And that happened again and again. Uh, even if Virginia. the majority of people support it, right? Even if the majority of people support it, but that's if it doesn't go up for a vote, it has to go through committee, right? In both in all state legislatures as well as in the federal uh, legislature, 
uh, the whole body of the legislature doesn't get to vote up or down on anything until the committee brings it to the floor. But let's say you take a committee vote uh, Mm -hmm. and the people who control the committee uh, or have a majority on the committee uh, say, we're not going to bring it to the floor. This is a story I tell in my book, uh, which I recommend to you. In 1970, but that vote everyone talks about, 96% of the House voting for it. In 1970. In 1970. do you know that throughout the 1960s, uh, it never went up for a vote in the House uh, because the chair of the House Judiciary Committee uh, refused uh, and the men who controlled the Judiciary Committee refused to bring it to a vote. So in order for it to get to a vote, uh, Martha Griffiths had to really learn some parliamentary procedure. Um, she did a discharge petition. Discharge petition is if the committee that has the bill doesn't send it to the floor, Uh, one person can get the signatures of 50% of the House to bring it to the floor. You're saying, even though the Judiciary Committee is in charge of this bill, if I could get half of the House to say we want to vote on it, she took three months to like corner like 200 and however many, 218 Mm -hmm. people uh, in order to get their signatures. uh, And that's how it went up for a vote. And when it went up for a vote, it got 96%. But this is another example of our legislatures are structured around minority power, right? The committee that has control of the vote. If it's controlled by a guy who hates the ERA, uh, then chances are it's not going to go up for a vote. Uh, And um, even though uh, if it does go up for a vote, there are 90% of the legislature willing to vote for it. Uh, And this is what happened in Virginia. It's what happened in many other states as well that did not ratify the ERA. And so despite um, overwhelming public support, the deadline passed. Yes. Um, And then it was extended. Um, And you're saying that that was all procedural. That had nothing to do with the popularity of the ERA. Well, I wouldn't say it had nothing to do with it because part of the reason the politicians feel confident, even though they're in the minority, they feel confident in bottling up the ERA, not bringing it for a vote, or even in some cases voting against it in ratification debates. Part of the reason they feel confident of that uh, is that there is a a women's movement opposing the ERA led by Phyllis Schlafly. Although I don't think it had a tremendous amount of support, but they it's a movement that's very effective uh, at communicating with uh, men in state legislatures. And indeed, Phyllis Schlafly herself was in very close contact with Sam Irvin, uh, the senator from North Carolina, who had implicitly threatened to filibuster the ERA. And they, they, they shared a lot of strategies uh, and communications uh, around their opposition movement to the ERA. So um, so that said, uh, I think it would be a stretch to say it had nothing to do with the substance. Uh, but sure, I, I think that very often people who use procedure uh, are able to exert a disproportionate amount of power by knowing procedure really well uh, and using it uh, to, to de- deploy it to support their, their substantive goals. The deadline was extended and no other states ratified it, but then something happened. Something happened that tells the story of how change can happen. I'd love for people to understand how we get from stalemate to getting enough states to ratify it. Like what, 
what what was the power that um, that people used to make that happen? I think the reason you get the three ratifications by Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia uh, starting in 2017 all the way up until 2020 is that there's a lot of momentum generated by the Women's March, uh, which is itself a reaction to Donald Trump's election to the presidency, as well as the Me Too movement in 2018. Uh, and so much of the story is also just looking at Nevada, uh, just having becoming the first legislature, uh, the state first state legislature in the United States to have uh, more than 50% women uh, elected and uh, increasing numbers of women in the Illinois and Virginia legislature as well. So I think they, they pick up the ERA uh, late in the game because it's a project that they think they want to finish. And if you look at the history of the battles over the ERA in the 1970s, and you understand that part of the reason the ERA lost in those three states in particular uh, was because of the way in which men manipulated parliamentary rules and structures uh, to um, ensure the ERA's defeat. Uh, it's kind of like a, uh, there's a turning of the tide when you have sufficient numbers of women in control of committees uh, and uh, with a significant voice in these state legislatures to get the ERA ratified. And I think that itself, uh, whether or not you put the text of the ERA in the constitution, um, that you see those last three ratifications happening through that process uh, says a lot about how far we've come, uh, even though we still have a long way to go. And so I think what it would take now, each of these states, especially Nevada, said that the reason they were well, it's not like they didn't know about the deadline. We all know uh, that there's a deadline. Uh, but what they put in the preamble when they uh, ratified was, well, they understand that Congress imposed the deadline. Uh, it wasn't part of the ERA's text. Uh, so if Congress has power to propose amendments uh, and they uh, put a deadline uh, in, uh, they, are also, uh, has the they have the same power uh, to change the deadline, which there is precedent for. Congress changed the deadline in 1977 uh, at a time when um, a very a very large number of women had been elected to Congress and they started a women's caucus for the first time in Congress right around the time. And one of the things that they really embraced, and this is women from both political parties embraced this, uh, was the extension of the ERA deadline uh, by three years. So if the ERA deadline could be extended, it could be extended again, uh, or it could just be removed. Uh, and that's what has been proposed in the House. Uh, there's enough support in the Senate uh, to remove the deadline, but because of the Senate filibuster, it has not been brought up for a vote uh, and uh, probably won't be brought up for a vote, even though if it came to the floor, uh, you have 51 votes in the Senate uh, to remove the ERA deadline. So I think that's what it would take. Uh, that is, uh, you'd have to, uh, the both houses of Congress would have to line up uh, in favor of removing the deadline. Do you have any last thing you want to say before you sign off? Yeah, I think it's a it's a basic staple of modern constitutionalism to guarantee equality to women, particularly for societies that are overcoming legal orders based in patriarchy. So I think that's the most important reason why we should have the ERA, but we should think of the ERA as the, a beginning 
uh, and a necessary condition of the empowerment of people of all genders, especially women and those uh, previously subordinated, it's only the beginning and it's necessary, but it's far from sufficient and it's not the end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor So Good luck. Thank Good you. Luck. Okay, Goodbye. bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Women's Z News podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe. And to learn more about Women's Z News, please visit us at womensenews.org. It's completely free to subscribe.